Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Hey, we have a huge show on Sunday Take this week. I'll keep it quick. We talked to Ryan Wilson about running for state auditor as a Republican and why he wants to replace Julie Blaha. We talked to Jake Loesch from MnDOT about the summer construction projects. And we have an extended interview with Eliza Darris, co-executive director of the Minnesota Freedom Fund. I'll keep my take short this week. Spring is here. Let's find some hope, some optimism, and get outside. Up next, Ryan Wilson, candidate for auditor. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. The first cup of coffee this Sunday morning is with Ryan Wilson. He's a Republican. He's running for state auditor, and he joins me now. Ryan, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take. Thank you for having me. Why do you want to be auditor? Well, uh, there are a lot of reasons, um, and they add up to a lot of dollars. When you look at uh, some of the issues that have plagued you know, our state and our local uh, governments over the last couple of years, there's a real gap between how money is supposed to be spent and how money is being spent. And so uh, we need an auditor that's going to come in and be a watchdog and somebody that's going to really look at how that money uh, is being used, um, not just theoretically, but actually. You know, is, it, uh, is it being used for the programs that it's intended to? Uh, is it being mismanaged? Um, is there fraud? Uh, is there waste? And how can, we, uh, how can we have better governments at you know, the county, the city, local levels, and some of these political subdivisions like the Met Council? When you talk about those places, obviously, there's, you, know, you bring up the Met Council and you were critical of... Uh, current state auditor, Julie Blaha, and Southwest Light Rail. 
Are there specific things you think either weren't done or should have been done from the state auditor's perspective on that project specifically? Yeah, so t- you know, the state auditor's office as a as a whole is a, is a good office. It has good uh, co- or uh, good CPAs in it, uh, good auditors. I've spoken with several, and it's very competent. And so the the issue I have with how the office is being managed is really from the from the top down, and it's what's it's setting the tone and the culture as to where those auditors are going to uh, where they're going to go look and where they're going to dig, right? And so every year the state auditor's office is responsible for auditing the Met Council. That includes an audit of uh, major federal programs like the Southwest Light Rail. And when one goes in an audit, you can uh, the, setting the scope of the audit uh, is, imp- is as important as the audit itself. And so Julie, uh, Senator, uh, Senator, <laughs> State Auditor Blaha's office was the one responsible, uh, was the office responsible for uh, overseeing the Met Council and the spending and didn't identify a lot of these issues. I mean, when you have a 200 million plus uh, lawsuit um, with your prime contractor, that's something that should be noted in the financial statements um, and uh, and should be a part of the scope of, the scope of the audit. It's one of the largest infrastructure projects that we've ever had. So, you know, if, if the state auditor believes that she didn't have you know, the resources or the authority um, to be able to find that, then one should go get those. One should go to the legislature. They should bring these issues up uh, and they should find a way that they can appropriately oversee this. I mean, we can't have, you know, a multi-billion dollar program that doesn't have good controls overseeing it. And so th- that was a big part of my criticism was either she should have caught it um, or she should have found a way to, to catch that. Uh, you know, our project should run on time, just like our trains. Our project should run on time and on budget. And um, we shouldn't be hit with these kind of surprise, you know, surprise overruns. One of the things that, you know, has been out there for years is whether or not we should even have a state auditor. Some people have said the the office is not needed anymore, that you know, private auditors could handle local audits. Um, there's also, I think, historically some confusion or mix up between the role of the state auditor versus the legislative auditor. How do you differentiate those? And I mean, do you think the state auditor's office, you know, should exist despite some people calling for it to be abolished? Oh, absolutely. You know, our state auditor's office has been around in one form or another since the you know, founding of Minnesota, um, since even, even predating that. And you know, over the years, uh, it's had different roles and different scopes. Uh, a lot of that's set by the legislature. But, you know, we live in a time where we need more auditing, not less auditing. And so when I got into the race, I had you know, several people approach me saying, you know, you should run to defund it or you should... Uh, you know, we should get rid of the office. Um, we have the office of the legislative auditor, and uh, that's not really a, a good solution for Minnesota because the office of the legislative auditor first reports to the legislature. So the legislature dictates uh, where and when those audits occur. The state auditor's office is an auditor that reports to the people. It's an elected constitutional office. It's accountable to the people. Um, and ultimately, if it's not, if uh, the office isn't doing its job, the people can speak. You know, every four years at the election. And so there are also things that in statute that the state auditor's office can do at the behest of the people. So, for example, if a certain percentage of people in the school district uh, petition the state auditor's office. The state auditor has to go audit on whatever that particular issue is. Um, that doesn't work the same way with the legislative auditor's office. Again, they're accountable to the uh, legislature. Uh, and probably the biggest uh, fundamental difference between the two is the legislative auditor's office is responsible for auditing basically everything state level and above, so you know, agencies, whereas the, um, the state auditor's office is counties, cities, school districts, and political subdivisions like the Met Council. Got it. What's your background? Uh, and I'm speaking with Ryan Wilson here on Sunday Take. Ryan, what's your background? Uh, you know, gives you the qualifications or the interest to run as a, a, for state auditor? You know, I'm, I was a longtime business owner. Uh, I founded a company uh, myself and a co-founder, started off as two guys. We built it from a small business to a mid-sized to a large business. Um, 
eventually a global medical research company where we were responsible for auditing clinical trial data. So a lot of, you know, a lot of people are now familiar with the clinical trial process, uh, given the vaccines and the pandemic that we just went through. Um, but we, we audited for companies like um, Medtronic, uh, Boston Scientific, medical device companies um, in Minnesota and around, uh, around the globe um, to ensure that their data was accurate, that it reflected what was happening, that there wasn't fraud happening. You know, at the hospitals. And so I did that for uh, well over a decade. Um, and then after that company uh, uh, was sold and eventually the successor uh, IPO'd, uh, I decided, no, I'm going to go back to uh, go to law school, find a way to give back, to help people, uh, to do mostly pro bono work. And so since then, I've been uh, doing attorney work, um, litigating in federal and state courts, uh, and, um, and uh, you know, mostly, um, mostly against, uh, against government entities, so holding governments accountable. And so you take that, you take my background as a CEO, uh, as an MBA, uh, as an attorney, knowing how to ask the right questions. Uh, and you know, that's, what decided, that's why I decided that I'm going to be getting into, into this race, because we needed somebody that knew how to ask those tough questions, that knew how to find the right answers, uh, that knew how to help people accountable. And so uh, what I saw was there was a gap between what the state auditor's office could be doing and what it is doing, and felt that I was the guy to, uh, to, fill, that, uh, to fill that gap. And so I decided to, decided to run for office from my hat in the ring and and uh, the, uh, the enthusiasm has been more than I could have expected. The people, a lot of people don't know a lot about the auditor's office, but once they hear what it can do, uh, they're fully supportive, uh, fully supportive of it and, and my uh, candidacy. As you think about that, you brought up COVID. Obviously, there's been an influx of federal dollars that uh, are going to be reviewed, accounted for uh, by the legislative auditor. Maybe the state auditor has a role in that. Uh, but there's also just a lot of data and information related to the pandemic, uh, the state, federal government. Are there any specific COVID issues or spending or funding issues around the pandemic and the influx of federal dollars or the spending of state dollars that you think deserve special attention? Yeah, I think there's you know there's three I can name right away. One is the if you look at the amount of money that came into the state, it's seventy three billion dollars in COVID aid from the federal government. And that includes what came into the state, but also into the county, the city, and school districts, um, and other political subdivisions. As I said, the state auditor's office will oversee everything below that state level. And so when we see stories like in the Star Tribune, for example, about how um, Edina used their COVID money uh, on, I think it was planting 100,000 uh, or 150,000 trees, it begs the question, how is that related to COVID? How is that related to things like keeping kids in school, building hospital capacity? And how were those federal, federal dollars spent? And so I think we can look at some of our cities and ask, you know, did they use those dollars well? Did they use them as they're intended? Uh, we can look at our school districts. Um, our school districts, like the city of Minneapolis, uh, received over $200 million in COVID, uh, in COVID spending. Yet they were closed uh, to in-person learning more than anyone else. Um, and we're also seeing now they have the, the most recent teacher strike that was uh, that was resolved, where there's a shortage of money in that school district in spite of you know a record number of uh, dollars being spent. And so again, I think a state auditor can go in and help answer some of those questions, which is where did that money go? Did it really go to being used? And so uh, as a state auditor, those are the you know, those are the types of ways that state auditor can help answer, was that money put to good use? Was it put to effective use? Um, and what kind of lessons can we learn from that? Brian Wilson's been my guest here on Sunday Take. Brian, I'm sure we'll talk about the race the rest of the way. He's running for state auditor. Next up on Sunday Take, we'll talk to Jake Loesch from Minnesota Department of Transportation about summer construction projects and, of course, the famous zipper merge. I'm Blaise Olson. It's WCCO on Sundays. And it's Sunday Take, talking politics. We'll be right back.
As I mentioned in the open, it is the season, and that is highway construction season. And I don't know about you, but I always have this good feeling about progress and things getting fixed and this, wait, there's going to be a construction site that I don't know about that I'm going to run into at some point this spring or summer. And I will have wished that I looked at the map before I planned my Minnesota road trip. Joining me now is Jake Lesh. He is the uh, with MinDOT, and he's going to talk about some of the big projects this year, how it went about planning these uh, projects and how they uh, come about. Jake, thanks for joining uh, Sunday Take. Yeah, good to be with you, boys. Thanks. So um, every year, I feel like this must be one of those news releases or releases that MinDOT kind of gets excited about because it is, you know, something that I think people really kind of take note of, especially if they live near or commute through or, you know, are a part of one of these projects. Talk about the number of projects, the amount of dollars being invested, uh, and how projects get picked uh, for MinDOT to work on during this season. Yeah, sure. So uh, this year we got about 235 projects in total, about 184 of those are roads and bridge specific, and then about 50 others that uh, focus on other transportation infrastructure, airports, water ports, transit infrastructure around the state. So we have another busy season. Um, you know, I think it's, it is it is one of those time periods for us where we tra- transition from, from winter and, and snow and ice removal to road construction and understand that it is... It's always a time of year where we're, we're excited because we're, we're tackling big projects. We're doing things that we know need to be improved on the transportation system. But at the same time, we know we, we're creating you know, an inconvenience for people. Road construction is never fun. It's always a challenge. So we do our best to try and make sure that we, we keep people uh, you know, aware of, of what's coming, whether it's on social media or email updates or in the news. We want to make sure we're giving you the details about where those detours and road construction are so you can navigate them and still get around. You know, We know it's inconvenient, but we want people to get around. And the way we, we uh, uh, select projects is really through, uh, uh, several years ago, the legislature required MnDOT to implement a project selection process and policy that defines some of our plans. MnDOT's an agency that has a lot of plans, um, but kind of the ones we, we think most about are our four-year and our 10-year plan. Um, the four-year plan is really kind of lays out what we're, what we're committing to for the next four years of construction. So while we do sort of make this announcement every year to remind people of what's upcoming that season, um, there are, you know, it's, it's a big federally required document, but we do have kind of a good layout of what we expect to do for the next four years. And then there's, of course, that 10-year plan, which lays out kind of nothing funding committed to yet, but the projects we know need work in, in the near future. As you think of those plans, one of the things that I, I mean, I certainly think that through communication channels, it's easier to figure out and plan around construction, but there's then the communication around the project. So for instance, um, previous MnDOT uh, communications people and I've talked about, you know, letting people know five miles before uh, so they can, you know, quote, make a move or get off, uh, you know, a lane before an exit changes. I'm looking at the list of some of the bigger projects this year, and I haven't exactly figured out how these line up. But one thing that's clear is that Highway 169 and Highway 10 will have construction. And both of those are very frequent <laughs> Uh, uh, go north routes for people during the summer. Are those synchronized in any way? Are those, you know, is it talked about like those are two routes that people use to get north of the cities, which is a popular summertime activity, and we want to minimize having two bottlenecks? I mean, the short answer is yes, we do our best that we can to, to synchronize and, and avoid too much overlap. But the reality also is sometimes that there is work needed on projects around the state in certain areas, particularly in the metro, where it can be 
unavoidable that there are overlaps and there are bottlenecks that that we have to do. It's it's a it's one of the big challenges our team faces every year, trying to figure out okay, what's in the plans? What do we know are sort of the most needed investments and and improvements we got to make on the transportation system? And how do we avoid making you know making it feel like no matter where you drive, there's always going to be construction. Um, but particularly that that's just harder in, in the metro area, certainly with everything much more condensed uh, and not not as much you know, open space, as you will, once you get out into greater Minnesota. So sometimes it, it's, it's unavoidable to, to double up on projects or have it feel like there are bottlenecks close by, but we do our best uh, to, to manage those and, and not, not cause too much of a headache for folks as they're getting out to the cabin or otherwhere. I also noticed a couple of projects, 212 out by Glencoe, Highway 14 between New Ulm and Nicollet. These are projects that have been talked about for a long time, have some very specific and tragic safety histories. Are those prioritized in any way or does it come through funding from the legislature and the feds that now is the time to get those done? You know, it, it, it can be both. Uh, for example, I use Highway 14, as you mentioned. Highway 14 has been a known issue and a known safety concern for, for many years. And yep. local communities and organizations all across southern Minnesota have been advocating for that. MnDOT has been working to get funding. It's a combination of being able to prioritize available dollars and seeking things like federal grants and other, uh, you know, state investment to be sure we can get it done. And this is a great year because this is finally the the last stretch of Highway 14 that we'll be breaking ground on this year. So in a couple of years, Highway 14 will have been expanded and complete across all of Southern Minnesota. And it's been a long time coming. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the reality is that MnDOT faces budget challenges. We've been, we've been talking about that for a long time. We know that we have, I mean, as, as, busy as any construction season may feel, we know that we have more needs on the system than we can fund at any given point. And so, you know, especially with with the the federal investment coming from the IIJA this year, we're excited about that additional potential federal funding to help us address some projects um, and what other grant programs might come out of it to to speed up some of the work that we know we have to do. Uh, I'm talking to Jake Lash from MnDOT about summer construction season, some of the big projects that are available at mndot.gov slash construction. Jake, as we start to wrap up here, um, looking forward, you talked about catching up, underfunding, federal dollars. For a long time, prior to you being at MnDOT, there was this kind of, we're X number of years behind um, on our investments there. Any sense of we're getting caught up at all? Does the federal bill help us catch up? And not that we're ever going to be, quote, totally caught up, but, end quote, is there kind of a ray of sunshine that, you know, we'll have some of these bigger projects that we've been waiting years on get done and that'll feel much better for, frankly, commuters and others? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the, the federal bill and, and the IIJ is absolutely a ray of sunshine. It's a, it's a major significant investment from the federal government in transportation infrastructure. You're right, and it's not going to close every gap we have. And, and infrastructure in, in general is, is cyclical. As soon as we start to make progress in one area, other elements of the system, bridges, roads, age, and they, they need to be updated. So we may never get ahead of it, um, but there really are some some good points. You know, we, you know, obviously to be, to be clear, we, we do pay, face funding gaps as we look into the future. And yep. our estimates are now somewhere, you know, in the in the range of about 18 billion over the next 20 years, uh, this sort of funding gaps that we need in the bridge bubble, as we look at a lot of our bridges that are aging, were built in the 50s and 60s and are going to be in need of repair. At the same time, I would point out there are some really good elements of our transportation system. Our bridge, our bridge infrastructure overall is in better shape than most states, particularly some of our neighboring states as well. Right now on our on our state system, only about 2% of bridges in poor condition. And on the whole 
local system, county and city-owned bridges, only about 5% are in poor condition. Yeah. So we've made significant progress in the last 10 to 15 years on a lot of our infrastructure. That doesn't mean we're not going to need to continue to make that progress in the years ahead. So yeah, that federal money is going to be going to be help, going to be helpful. There's new programs, there's new investments we're going to be able to make, and folks can continue to hear us, you know, talking at the state legislature and urging our legislators to carry on with those important transportation investments. Jake Lush, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take, and just a reminder, everyone, do the zipper merge and talk about how great it is, and Jake will be a happy man all summer. Be the happiest man you could you could imagine. That's great. Thanks, boys. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Up next on Sunday Take, the Freedom Fund of Minnesota. They've been in the news a lot over the last couple of years. They've changed their direction. We'll hear from one of their executive directors. I'm Blois Olson. You're listening to Sunday Take. Our final conversation this Sunday is with Eliza Darris. He is one of the executive directors, co-executive director of the Minnesota Freedom Fund. Minnesota Freedom Fund has been in the headlines. It's been covered. There's been a lot of news about it. But like many things, it's evolved. And um, I've had questions uh, about it. I've included it in the morning take. Um, But I think, you know, in the context of the issues within our community and the political backdrop of the criminal justice system and public safety, it's important to hear from Minnesota Freedom Fund uh, about how they started, but who they are today. Eliza, thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to allowing uh, me to be on the show. I really look forward to having a conversation with you. So the Minnesota Freedom Fund really kind of broke into the news or into the headlines post-George Floyd's murder around the civil unrest and some of the riots. Uh, There was this huge fundraising wave. And then people started to wonder, who is it? What is it? Where is it? I think some of the stories then are very different than who the Freedom Fund is now. So take us through a little bit of a short history of Minnesota Freedom Fund, how it got started and and what the organization does and is today. So the Minnesota Freedom Fund was started in 2016 uh, when a group of college students were basically looking at some of the inequitable practices around jailing within our state. And they wanted to be able to help people uh, who who could not afford uh, to, to post bails or to post immigration bonds to be to be able to do so because they recognized that uh, there was a financial motive behind um, the inaccessibility uh, of freedom for those people. And so they created something that is known as a community bail fund. Uh, and so this isn't something that began uh, after the murder of George Floyd. The Minnesota Freedom Fund actually began in 2016. Uh, and had began evolving ever since then. When I was with the ACLU of Minnesota, uh, which is the location that I was at three years prior to coming here to the Minnesota Freedom Fund, we would typically tap the the Freedom Fund to be able to assist us in helping to bail out some of our clients, some of our clients who are facing deportation and other really heavy penalties uh, if we were not able to help to get them bailed out so that we can bring their cases to more equitable outcomes. And so we, we've been partnered with the Minnesota Freedom Fund for years, which is how I even learned of the Minnesota Freedom Fund and began developing a relationship with uh, some of the staff at the Minnesota Freedom Fund. After George Floyd was murdered uh, in Minneapolis, there was a huge influx of resources and I mean, this came rapidly fast uh, yes. into the organization uh, within a matter of <clears throat> literally weeks, uh, tens of millions of dollars uh, was donated into the organization. 
uh, to such an extent that the organization was really, it, it, it was it was unprepared and shocked uh, to have been resourced to that amount uh, and then took the steps to actually shut down its donation link so that more resources wouldn't come into the organization. But the organization was still faced with, uh, with the daunting task of now how to properly marshal and utilize uh, the resources with a staff of basically two and with what is known as a working board, meaning the board members really had to be the ones to uh, utilize their own hands, yeah. their own feet, and do work for the organization. Unpaid work, volunteer work, but nonetheless serious work for the organization. We're going to ask me something? No, I was just saying that the working board becomes the staff and the, they're volunteers, but there's no staff to do work. So the board steps in and does the work, right? Right. And so the, the board paid bills, the board you know, ran the organization, the board ran the website, the, the board was the organization. Uh, but that is an unsustainable model because volunteers also have jobs. Yep. Uh, and so the organization knew that it needed to bring in some level of executive leadership to take over the organization and to really help it build itself and grow itself out. And there was a gap of several months between when this organization finally brought in executive leadership and when the, the organization was operating under interim leadership. Uh, and so uh, Mireya uh, Sejo Orozco uh, and myself were brought in to the organization uh, in late February of 2021. So and in February of 2021, you guys came in. So over a year ago, you guys came in. And, and that is that when the, I, I mean, you started to hire staff and started to be, I don't not know. Not quite yet. We weren't, we weren't officially part of the organization. Okay. We officially, we became part of the organization March 30, I believe. <laughs> so so we didn't have any we didn't have any executive powers at the time, but yep. the decision was made we were going to be the executive leaders. Uh, and we began at least looking at the organization for what we wanted to uh, in the directions we wanted to help the organization grow into. And so in late March is when we formally and officially took the organization over. Okay, so since then, what has been kind of before we get to the you know the hot headlines or whatever? As you've as you've become a more professional or staff-driven executive-run organization, after that wave of money came in and resources came in, how have you kind of figured out the goals and missions of the Minnesota Freedom Fund? Have they changed? Have they expanded? Have they contracted? What is it that the Minnesota Freedom Fund sets out to do on a daily basis? And then what are the long-term goals? I mean, so on a daily operational basis, um, we seek to end some of the oppressive harms that happens from jailing of those who are not able to afford bail, uh, which is everyone's constitutional right, specifically here in Minnesota. Minnesota is separated from many other states around the nation in that in the state constitution, you are guaranteed a right to bail. Uh, and so you have the notion of bail uh, that is not excessive, um, federally, but you have a guaranteed right to bail in Minnesota. Minnesota is what is considered as a right to bail state. And so when Mireya and I came into the organization, we looked at what we call the four Ps. Uh, that is personnel, practices, procedures, and policies. Uh, and we looked to see how can we strengthen our personnel? How can we create new policies, new practices, and new procedures so that we were a much more robust an organized organization. And to do that, we really had to pause operations for a bit. And so we did make the determination. And this was a difficult determination because 
you know, people were, you know, harmed. Uh, and there was a, a great outcry of the community when we had to pause operations temporarily just so that we can get a handle of what was going on, what was the lay of our land, uh, and operationally, what immediate adjustments could we make. Uh, and so naturally, we looked to bring in critical high-level staff that included an operations director, that included a finance director. Yeah. Uh, so this is an organization that, you know, ballooned in size, but some of the critical internal infrastructure that was necessary in order to make it robust and in order to have uh, the, the level of impact that it could have, they weren't present. And so the, the, the first task for us was to look to develop um, a scaffolding that was that can hold up the internal infrastructure of, of our group. And that's specifically what we did. We also began staffing even larger. And so we went from a staff of nearly eight to a staff of almost 20 at this point, of which we brought in staff to specifically support those who were building out. And we've also brought in staff to, to do things that are more on the front end, that are much further up the stream, so that we're not dealing with a lot of the back end consequences of having a broken system. And that, that includes lobbying staff, that includes organizing staff who are meeting with uh, some of our elected officials, uh, including uh, county staff, city staff, and state uh, elected officials as well. Got it. So I'm um, speaking with. Uh... Eliza Darris, he's one of the executive directors. There's two, co-executive director of the Minnesota Freedom Fund. So Eliza, one of the things about the Freedom Fund that we see in headlines, we've seen it multiple times, is that you've provided bail to someone who gets out, commits a, allegedly commits a crime, is bailed out, and then allegedly commits another crime. And it blasts across headlines. And, and it leaves some people kind of scratching their heads as to how is this happening? Why is this group doing this? Can you start with the kind of parameters by the individuals that you will offer bail to, you won't offer bail to, how people access these funds, et cetera? So typically people, there's several different manners in which people can connect with us to attempt okay. to access bail. Sometimes community organizations connect with us. Oftentimes, public defenders are the ones who refer their clients to us. And sometimes family members also um, um, refer people uh, yeah. to us. I guess, and, you know, what, and, what so, I'm and, like, how do people, it's, it's one thing for people to find you. And then it's the other decision process of how you choose to give people funds to cover bail, right? Like, is there a committee? Is it an individual call? Is it just operationally or sensibly? And, and I ask yeah, no, this. I, I get what you're saying. I so, ask this because I think this, you know, to, to the general public, people who don't follow these issues, this is kind of a different concept, right? It's not a bail bondsman. It's, it's not, it's different. And one of the reasons it's different is because you're trying to change the system. So in order to help change the system, you obviously have to operate within the system today. Well, it's, it's a patently false notion that somehow we, we are just, you know, flagrantly paying bills, that there's no consideration, that, that, you know, we almost throw our fingers in the air and where the wind lands, that's where we pay a bail. That's, that's, that's patently false. Yeah. Uh, and it wouldn't even make much sense anyway. I mean, I live literally minutes walking distance from George Floyd Square. I was there 
uh, within a few hours after he was murdered. So I, this is my community. This is our community. We are inside of the community. And so we have an interest in having a robust and healthy and sound community as well. But we don't believe in creating that type of a community at the expense of throwing away people who, we, who others would consider expendable or who others would say their constitutional rights are less important than others. Every bill that we pay is carefully reviewed by our staff and it's approved by a director. Uh, there's, a, there's a suggestion that we don't look at these cases and that's false. What we don't use is, is some type of a point-based rubric or any other tool to determine who receives bail from us. Those, those kind of tools are used by judges to determine, uh, quote unquote, risk and set bail conditions. And these instruments, they've been used to increase racial disparities uh, and things like bail and also pre-child jailing. Uh, and so for us, they're really antithetical uh, to what we're trying to accomplish. But since taking over as executive leadership of the Minnesota Freedom Fund, we've instituted individual bail caps. So, so that's the amount that we're willing to pay for one person. Okay. Uh, and we also have monthly bail caps, and that's the amount that we are able to pay in one month. So we don't go okay. over either of those. And this allows us to do more than just pay bails on an individual basis. It also allows us to spend time focusing on our other goal of ending pretrial detention. When we review a case, uh, we look at whether we can utilize our post-release program to coordinate release from jail to treatment for someone who has health or chemical dependency issues. Uh, we look at whether someone is a primary caregiver for their family members. Uh, we look at whether stable housing can be arranged for a client who may or may not be unhoused. Uh, and, and yes, you know, we also look at a person's history and other charges and past failures to appear and, and things of that nature. But no one element not one of these elements uh, do we use to disqualify a person just on the strength of the element alone. But if you think about us as compared to bail bond companies, for instance, everything that I just got through naming in terms of helping to arrange treatment, uh, mental health services, housing, um, uh, we've created a relationship with Lyft where if you can't make it to, to, to one of your court dates, Lyft, Lyft and our organization have an agreement that we can send them Lyft calls for free and Lyft will pick them up and take them back yeah. home, right? So yeah. that's, there's, there's numerous things that we do as an organization that bail bonds companies absolutely would never do in a right. million years. Uh, and so we're, we're not similarly situated because we're not similarly situated. Like we are in the community and we have an interest in, in having healthy outcomes. Now, sometimes those outcomes are going to be an individual case is disposed of, and meaning that the case is thrown out, or a patient may be found guilty and they may end up you know, receiving time, um, yep. or they may plead guilty. Right. But in, in any case, we have an interest in having a healthy and robust and thriving community because we live here. No, I, Elijah, I get, and I think that's what I wanted to kind of discuss because, you know, one of the things that I think the general population, when you talk about our community and, um, and the, you talk about where you live and, and the people within that community, one of the, you know, one of the challenges of what you're doing is that it's different than a system that all of us grew up in, right? And all of us have had different experiences. We learned about it in school. We knew somebody went through it. It's just been a given that if you are charged with a crime and there's bail, that you use a bail bondsman or that you are held pre-trial if you are a threat or those kinds of things. However, in the environment we're in, both media, political, otherwise, around issues of public safety, issues around criminal justice, there 
the the area in which people have opinions, feelings is gray. Some people feel like no matter what the crime, you should not have to be held pretrial. Some people think a certain crime, you know, it it doesn't even need to be a violent crime. It could be a a crime of opportunity. It could be a property crime. Everybody has a different spectrum of thinking there. And what I, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you guys on the show is because it's that spectrum that sometimes either the headline says or somebody's, you know, historical thinking just doesn't jive, right? It doesn't align. And therefore, they they create their own mindset or opinion about Minnesota's Freedom Fund or those people who have supported you politically, non-politically, financially. And so one of the reasons it's important to have this conversation is the change you're trying to enact is different, but the I call them values. Like, I think in general, we agree that if someone is committing a violent crime that brings fear to their community and they do that over and over again, there should be a consequence. And I think people worry that maybe we're changing that too. Now, take into account mental health, take into account addiction, take into account socioeconomics. All those things are factors. But at the end of the day, there's an, there's an expectation that communities are safe. And I think that's where the headlines or the, the social media posts about you are just one piece out of context from people with an agenda versus the larger work you're doing. And that's why when you say, we're just trying to do all this, but pre-trial holds, you know, that might be unfair. Well, and I think most middle Minnesotans of any color or of socioeconomic would say, well, yeah, but if your pre-trial hold is because you you know, committed a series of violent crimes. And, you know, maybe we should just keep you there to keep the community safe. Am I characterizing that right? Or am I still missing my point? No, I hear what you're saying. Um, but, you know, what that would, so to say you committed a crime would be an, an utter disregard for what should be a bedrock principle of this nation. And that bedrock principle of this nation is innocent and to proven guilt. Yep. Uh, in this nation, it doesn't really matter uh, what crime really you're accused of. What matters is whether or not you can afford to pay the bill to get out. And so in one instance, someone may be accused um, loitering, for instance, yep. right? Um, and the bail might be, I don't know, let's say $150, right? right. And someone else might be accused of uh, murder uh, yep. of two people, and the yep. bail might be $500,000, right? Yep. If the individual with $500,000 pays, he or she gets out. If the person that, that has doesn't have $150, they stay in. Yep. So it's really not even a question of public safety. It's really a question of who has the resources uh, to be able to get out. And that is a perversion of justice. What we also know is those who are unable to get out typically have worse outcomes uh, in terms of longer jail sentences, yep. uh, in terms of more guilty pleas than those who are able to get out. And so the, the idea of innocence to proven guilty, while it may be distasteful for some people to apply that across the board, it's a bedrock principle of this nation. But, but, but let, me, let, me, let, me, let me add this, because this is important, is that the vast majority, and I do mean the vast majority of the clients that we bail out, do return to court, do see their, their cases to resolution. Now, 
I know that some right-wing media have been have been uh, posting stories about individuals who we have bailed out. We're aware, uh, for example, of recent reportings that shares information about 18 of our clients. Yep. Of those 18 clients, six were accused of another crime after we paid their bail. Just four of those were accused of crimes of violence. And that represents about 0.2% of all of the bails that we've paid since since January of 2020. So I think that's, and, and we need to wrap here just because we're running out of time, but I want to be mindful that that those are the kind of numbers that I think don't get exaggerated or amplified. On the flip side, when those do get amplified, it raises questions about the other 99.8%, right? And that's where I think we're at. That's why I wanted to have you on uh, Eliza, and talk about the Minnesota Freedom Fund. We will continue to hold these discussions um, and and amplify it. At the end of the day, I think innocent till proven guilty is a bedrock of our criminal justice system. I think that 99.8% of Americans and Minnesotans agree that you're innocent until proven guilty, that you deserve that. I think it is in these times the emotion and the feeling, and I've said this a lot, the feeling of issues we have, whether it's the criminal justice system, whether it's public safety, whether it's the pandemic, the feelings are raw for so many people and it's multidimensional, whether you're in it, you know, you live in the suburbs uh, and you're white or you live in the city and you're black. Uh, and hey, hey, boys, that's why we don't allow ourselves to be governed by our feelings and by our emotions, because those feelings and those emotions, particularly running raw, as, as this nation's history has repeatedly shown, can prove themselves to be very, very, very dangerous. We are a nation of laws, and we have a constitution. We have a state constitution, and part of the state constitution says everyone has the ability to have uh, accessibility for bail. We don't want to punish people uh, for, for poverty. We don't want to punish people uh, because they're not able to afford it. I want people to do have a historical backdrop in terms of the advent and the rise of bail. Um, and we can have some more of that conversation in terms of what are some of the historical legacies of bail. Yep. And I would love Absolutely. to come back and have like a broader conversation with you as well. Yeah, no problem. Eliza, thanks for joining me. We will continue to follow this uh, in Morning Take here on Sunday Take and in all the kind of WCCO coverage. Uh, Eliza, Darius, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take. I know we'll talk more this year. Without a doubt. Thank you for allowing me to be on the show with you. I enjoyed myself. I'm Blois Olson. Until next week on Sunday Take. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.